You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. And then after you're done meeting and greeting, you can turn to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, chapter 1, right in the beginning. So this is the, uh, right in the New Testament, right in the beginning of the New Testament. And we're in this habit of not putting up the scriptures on the screen to encourage you to turn there for yourself, whether it be the, an actual book, a paper book, or um, a, a phone that has a sweet Bible app on it. So turn to Matthew chapter 1, and then go down to where it says, uh, verse 18 is where we're going to start. So Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. This is the, the Christmas story, the nativity of when Jesus comes to the earth. So it's Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to marry Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And then verse 20, it says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then this verse, kind of why I read this passage, verse uh, 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And that that name is Yeshua or Joshua, uh, means Yahweh will save. And so she will give birth to a son, you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. And so that's the prophecy about Jesus, that he will come and he will save people from their sins. So let's pray this morning as we begin. Father in heaven, we thank you. We, we are just in honor of, of you and glorifying you that you would send your son Jesus to this earth, that Jesus, you came by the power of the Holy Spirit to save us from our sins. And your very name, Yeshua, Jesus, uh, Joshua, your very name means that Yahweh will save, that you will save us from our sins. And so we worship you. We glorify you alone as our, as our Savior, the one who came and saved us from the, the pit that we were in, the, 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 just the sin that we were in. So, Father, we give you praise and honor and glory this morning. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Well, I want to begin today by telling you three stories of what salvation looks like. Three very short, but three true stories of what salvation can look like. And um, the first story is of a young man, a guy that comes to the mill, uh, still comes to the mill. And he had come to the mill before this night um, when he was driving up and down powers. And he was... um, just uh, thinking about ending his own life. He was thinking about, I'm going to drive my car fast enough down powers and, and hit something and, and kill myself. And he was under um, just depression. And he, had, he shared with me that he had been molested and, and just dealing with condemnation and shame and, and feeling unloved and that someone had taken advantage of him. And going through this depression and didn't want to live anymore, and was driving up around here on, on powers, thinking about suicide. And so a very dangerous place to be depressed. Um, 
wanting to commit suicide and having a plan um, and then carrying, starting to carry out that plan, a very dangerous place. Um, and he realized it was Friday night, which is when the mill meets and we meet uh, up here every Friday night at seven. And he thought, I'll give God one more chance. I will, I will just come to the mill. He had been to the mill, um, didn't really know Christ, but knew that there was a, this, uh, the mill was a good place to be, a spiritual place, and decided I'll go to the mill. I'll check it out. And if, and if he just there's one last try, and then afterwards he was going to plan to go to carry out with his suicide attempt. But he comes to the mill and listens to the worship. Here's a sermon about God's grace and God's love upon his life and decides instead of taking his life to give his life over to the Lord. And, and he tells this story as like a great conversion story, how God saved him from his own sin, saved him from condemnation and save, saved him from shame. And, and now he tells his story. And so it's a pretty cool story of what salvation looks like for us. So that's the, that's the first story. The second story is, is kind of my own story of what salvation looks like in my life, that I was um, in high school and um, kind of a loner. I was very just shy and very um, just, just always wondering what people were thinking about of me. And just, just like, I don't know, just a very loner, shy kind of guy, which now it's like, I can't believe that because you're in front of people and it seems like you're happy and nice and you like people. Um, and, but in high school, I was just under a lot of fear and I would always eat lunch by myself. If you can imagine like the high school cafeteria, I'd always kind of go and find a spot by myself and just always kind of under this like, what, you know, like, what are people going to say about me? They're going to make fun of me or something like that. And in, in a lot of ways, full of anger and the people I did know, my family, I, was, I would just get into fights with them and almost like feel good about winning a fight. And just because of my anger and, and just, just arguing with my mom and my dad and always never feeling like, oh, I need to go apologize for blowing up at them and getting mad, but just feeling like, yeah, I got them that time. And, and when I became a Christian, I remember I went to this Protestant youth group for the first time. Kids invited me, and so I went, and I heard the gospel message, went on a retreat um, up into the mountains, a ski, a ski trip, and gave my life to the Lord. And I just remember the radical change that happened, and that even on the, my way home, on the bus ride home from this retreat, I just kept thinking, I need to apologize to my parents and my family about just how I've been treating them, and just being angry at them all the time, and, not, and never apologizing. So when I got home, I just apologized that I even left for that retreat being mad at them. And it was just radical, it might not seem that radical, but in my life it was noticeable. My parents noticed like, oh wow, you're starting to go to church. Is it this church thing that, you know, is making you so much nicer and making you so much more friendly and not full of anger? And I was like, well, in some ways, but it's this, this Jesus inside of me that saved me from my sins and that now I have this... Um, Instead of condemnation, I have this, the Holy Spirit showing me that I could receive forgiveness and I should seek out forgiveness. So that's my story, story number two. Story number three of what salvation looks like here on earth is um, there, there's a guy that comes to the mill um, and he confessed to me, he asked me to meet. And so we met up in my office and he said, Joe, I'm really having a hard time with, with things on the internet and looking at them and pornography and these addictions. And so I recommended, well, there's this ministry. It's a Christian ministry in town. It's totally free. It's called Heart to Heart Ministries. And it, it's basically just groups of guys, accountability. I mean, there's nothing special that special about it, but it's, it's um, groups of guys getting together and talking through their addictions and talking through how they want to get help and keeping each other accountable. 
And, and he went to one of those groups and continues to go to one of those groups. And it's now been like three years. And he, he got married, he was engaged and got married. And now he's been free from addictions of, of internet pornography for years now. And he looks back and he's like, thank you for helping me and find a place and a community and allowing Christ to take over this area of my life. And so these are just stories of what salvation looks like and the power of the gospel, which is today what we're going to talk about here in the Mill Sunday School. So welcome to the Mill Sunday School. We're, we're taking on this topic of salvation all this month. And so I wanted to begin with those stories. But if you're new to the Mill Sunday School, Welcome. We have um, on your tables are these cards. They look something like that. And you could fill one of them out. And then as, as you leave, give them to the nice people. We're giving out gift bags now, uh, which are pretty cool. It has Brady's new book, Sons and Daughters. It has a CD with some uh, worship from the mill on a Friday night and a welcome sermon by uh, Daniel Grothry, our, our mill pastor. So welcome if you're new. So we're so glad that you're here. So um, let's see. As far as announcements go, there's this bookmark on your table. It looks like that. And on it is this nine-month-long course of systematic theology. Um, do you realize that if you've been coming that we're, we are on this nine-month topic of, of, of systematic theology? We've been taught, we introduced this subject a long time ago. Um, we, we've been talking through creation and, and God and humanity. And then last month we talked about Jesus. And so do you remember, and, and maybe some of you do, uh, months ago when we started in September, um, we had cards on the table and we said, you could ask any question you want that has to do with anything about Christianity or theology or religion. You could ask any question you want, and at some point we'll get to answering them. Does anybody remember that? A long time ago. I mean, this is September. This is months ago. Um, and so if you were here, great. And so I wanted to recap Christology, this, this topic that we talked about last month. And these were the two cards. Uh, I have two cards that, that we, uh, months ago, said these are Christology questions. These are questions having to do about Jesus. And so we said, uh, we're going we're gonna to organize these questions. And as we talk about various subjects through this nine months, we're going to bring back out these questions and answer them. Anybody remember that? Do you remember that? Yes. Okay, good. Me too. So, uh, good. And so there was a team. So I said, make up a team name for your table and then, and then ask a question. So this, this uh, table decided they were Team Blue. Is, it, is Team Blue still in here? Do you remember if you were part of Team Blue a long time ago? No hands? Okay. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Team Blue asked, did Jesus heal and perform miracles from the power of the Holy Spirit or from his power as the second person of the Trinity? A great question. We talked about Christology last month, and we talked about how Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time. And so this question is really asking, you know, was Jesus just a human like one of us, but he had the power of the Holy Spirit, so he was able to heal? Or was Jesus fully God and was able to heal, perform miracles out of the fact that he was, in fact, God? And the answer to this question, it's kind of a two-part question, is yes and yes. Like, and so if you wrap your mind around this hypostatic union, this union between Jesus' humanity and Jesus' divinity, we would answer yes and yes to both of these questions. Did Jesus heal out of being a human and being full of the Holy Spirit? Yes, he was fully human. And did Jesus heal out of being God, the second person of the Trinity? Yes, he was fully God. And, and as we begin to answer questions out of the hypostatic union, things often get very confusing. But we as Christians, um, 
as evangelical Protestant Orthodox Christians would say, Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. So yes and yes is the answer to this question. And then the other question, by the Bible thumpers. Anybody remember that they were, if they were a Bible thumper from, the, from way back? Was that this group? Do you remember? Were you? Maybe? Bible thumpers? No? All right. Anyways. So the Bible thumpers, this team name, uh, said, did Christ know the whole time? When he was on earth, that he would be crucified. And then kind of a secondary question that's very much a part of the first. Does his humanity or does humanity limit his divinity? And to this question, we'd say, no, his humanity did not limit his divinity. He was not half human and half God. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. And that is a mystery. And I'm not saying that, oh, we got all the questions answered in here. High five, right? Well, not so fast because there is some sort of mystery around how he could be 100% God and 100% man at the same time. But I bring up these two questions because it's going to go right into what we're talking about today, soteriology. Because Jesus, if he fully was God and he died for our sins, well, then that does it once and for all. God died for our sins. That, is, that alone is enough. It's not just someone uh, on behalf of God, but it's God himself dying for our sins. How awesome is that? And at the same time, he's fully human. And if he's fully human, then he knows what it's like to be one of us. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to have a bad day. He was fully human and fully God at the same time. So um, here comes the discussion question. We're, we're in, in a way changing gears just a little bit to talk about salvation. And kind of, we'll, we'll kind of come back to this idea of who Jesus was and, and how he was able to fully save us. But here's a discussion question for you. So if you're at a smaller table, you could join a bigger table. Um, I think discussion is always has been an important part of the Mill Sunday School. The fact that we sit together and we are able to bounce ideas off of each other and not just passively learn, but learn from each other. So here is the discussion question. What are the parts of Christian salvation? If you were to say, oh, salvation is about this, maybe list some words that you know that are the parts of salvation. And so maybe assign someone at your table to be the scribe, and they will write down various parts. You could have as many as you want, um, but what are the parts of Christian salvation? Do you understand the question? Everybody say yes. All right. Ready, get set, discuss, go. All right, I would love to get some feedback. Um, so sorry to interrupt your conversations, but I was, I'm looking for like one word answers. So someone asked, are we asking like, what are the components of salvation? Or are we talking about like, what does it mean to be saved? Like, how do you get, to, what are the steps? And the answer to that is yes and yes. We're looking at the step, like what are the steps to salvation? And maybe what are the components of salvation? So I'm kind of looking for like one word answers. Does anybody want to yell out a word? Sanctification. Yes. Did anybody else say sanctification is some sort of a part of Christian salvation? What else? Confession. Jesus. Yes. Faith. Yeah. Confession. Jesus. Faith. Sanctification. These are all parts uh, or components of salvation. What else? Resurrection. Hope. Grace. Yes. Sonship or daughtership. Um, Yes. What else? Baptism would be forgiveness. These are all, if we as, as Christians talk about these different parts of salvation, if you think about your own salvation experience, you would talk about faith and repentance. And, and did anybody list the word conversion? Nobody listed the word, I mean, isn't that a pretty big part? <laughs> Somebody did. Okay, good. Um, what else? Anybody in the, in the back have a word? 
Propitiation. Ooh, big word. I like it. Yes. What else? Justified. Redemption. Yes. Anything else? I'm hearing better and better words as we go. All right, we'll, we'll pause there. So I have, um, so in your notes, I, I have listed four things. And these are kind of, if you take theology courses, uh, you will see these words over and over again. And it's, it's not to say that whatever word you said, because uh, we just said a lot more than four words, um, are, are not part of salvation. We would say that, that these four would in a way be the process of salvation. This would be uh, the steps of salvation. This would be what defines salvation for us as Christians. And I think the words that we said, repentance and baptism, would, would somehow fit into one of these four. And so I'm going to list these four and talk about each one. And so that's really today's lesson. If you're like, what are we going to talk about? Well, we're going to talk about the three parts of salvation we're going to list, list them and define each one, and that will be today's lesson. A very um, broad, a very, um, in, a, in a way, a reminder to us of what salvation is. Um, if you've never heard these words or seen them listed out like this, it will just, I think, hopefully be this beautiful presentation of, of yes, that is what salvation is. I, I remember going through that as, as a kid or as a high schooler for me, conversion and, and justification, sanctification, glorification. So, Let's list them out. The first one, if you're taking notes um, on your notes that we gave you when you came in, hopefully you got one. Uh, the first one would be the word conversion. Um, that, of course, would, and there's things that probably precede conversion. If you think about your own salvation and think about um, the steps that led you to believe. For me, it was, oh, I kind of grew up in church, um, but I didn't, I, wasn't, I wouldn't call myself a, a believer or a born-again Christian. I would just say, oh yeah, I go to church because my parents make me go to church. Um, but there was this point for me in high school when I, I legitimately converted to Christianity. And so we, we could talk about this conversion as a process. We can talk about it as a, as a moment. But either way, we would talk about some sort of salvation being begun with conversion. This, this idea that you come to the Lord with repentance and faith. And I like how, um, has anybody heard of uh, the, the scholar N.T. Wright? Tom Wright. Lots of hands. Cool. So he's kind of this uh, scholar, an Anglican scholar. I have a video clip of him talking about um, something in just a second. But he defines conversion as this. When the gospel is preached, a person hears it and they realize that they believe it. And I like that word realize there because then it incorporates this idea of predestination, but you're choosing it and you're realizing salvation. So it's both parts, your your, uh, work and that you respond to God and of course God's work being the bigger part. So you you realize your own belief in in that you um, hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that his sin, um, that your sin has been covered by his sacrifice. And so... I think that that, when we think about conversion, I think there's different parts of it that we can mention. There's different parts of it that are very important to your own conversion, um, like repentance and faith. And I think one of the most important parts of conversion has to be this realization that you need your sin covered, that, that you need salvation. I mean, here we are defining salvation. And I think some people would say, um, salvation from what? Like if you go out and, and talk to non-Christian Americans and say, are you saved? They would say, maybe some of them, well, saved from what? And you could say, well, saved from your sin. And they might say, well, what sin? I haven't, 
you know, I'm not a bad person. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I don't have any, you know, grave sins in my life. But, but we as Christians would say, well, we're all, we all sin. I think we as humans would just have to realize, if you were really honest with yourself, you've sinned. You've fallen short of, uh, of the glory of God. And there's this idea that um, is, is talked about in this writing by C.S. Lewis. Uh, has anybody read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis? So if you get this book, and I encourage you to do so, um, the first 40-something pages, um, and it's, it's pretty easy to read, are his moral argument for the existence of God. C.S. Lewis um, said, begins with this idea, and he says, have you ever heard someone argue? Sometimes it could fu- sound quite funny. Sometimes it could sound right mean. But whatever it is, people, when they're arguing, revert to um, some sort of natural law. They'll say something like, that's my seat because I was sitting there first, or that's my orange because I brought it from home. Um, and so you're, you're referring to some sort of bigger idea, some, some sort of moral law that should uh, govern the world. And because everyone, when, when we're like, well, what's good? It was like, well, I'll refer to this as good and this is bad because, you know, hurting someone, oh, that's bad. But, but doing nice, being nice to someone, that's good. And why do we define it like that? Well, C.S. Lewis would say, because there's a moral law over this whole world. And he'd said, because there's a moral law outside of the world itself, there has to be a moral law giver. And that moral law giver is perfect. And so he does a much better job than I of, of defining this moral argument and saying there has to be a God because, uh, because there's morals and there's a moral law giver. But it basically boils down to that there, if there is a moral law giver and if we have ever broken that moral law, then we before God are in need of forgiveness. And so part of conversion has to be um, knowing and realizing our sin and asking our own creator for forgiveness. And so we'd say conversion is, is the first part of, of salvation. And then we list this big word um, that starts with a J, justification. And I always like how um, preachers will say justified is, the, the, the meaning of that word justified is, sounds like you've been just if I'd never sinned. Have you heard that before? That justified is just if I'd, get it, never sinned? Anybody? Have you already heard it so much that it's not, cool anymore. If you've heard it, if you're hearing it for the first time, it's like, oh, that's pretty cool. Um, This declaration that I, that it's just as as if I'd never sinned, that's what justification means. And it's some sort of a legal term, um, as as Paul uses it in the New Testament. And so if you have ever sped uh, and got caught from speeding, anybody ever get a speeding ticket? Raise your hand. You have. Um, So if you were speeding and the cop pulls you over for speeding and he gives you a ticket, then you have to pay some amount. Maybe you have to go to court too uh, if you were speeding more than 10 over or whatever the rule is. Um, And you have to pay some amount, like 50 bucks or 100 bucks. Or I've heard people spending uh, hundreds of dollars on speeding tickets, which means they were going a lot faster than they should. But anyways, if you get caught for speeding, you go to court, you pay your speeding ticket, well, then it's still going to be on your record. There's going to be points taken off your, your driver's license record. I think it's for a matter of like three years, depending on the severity of the speeding crime. And, but let's say you paid your speeding ticket, and it's been three years, and so the time has passed. Then because you paid the time, 
after your speeding ticket, and because you paid the fine of the speeding ticket, then after so many years, it would be, you would be justified, just as if you'd never, just as if I'd never sped. And so it'd be off your record. And so that's kind of this declaration that if you, you know, pause and stop and say, Jesus, yes, I have, um, I have offended you as my creator, but I receive your grace in my life, and I will, will, will allow you to take upon yourself my sins and die for me. I mean, here we are talking about you know, the basis of the Christian message. You convert, then you are declared um, justified. You are declared righteous. And there's a lot of talk, and maybe you've always um, heard these things mentioned uh, as one thing, that, that at conversion, you are justified. That, that maybe justification is in itself conversion. And there's a debate over like the nerds of theology when we get together and, and we talk about uh, things like conversion being the same as justification. Is that one moment or do, you then, or do you convert and then are you justified later by some sort of declaration? Or is that one and the same thing and we can go back and forth and have different Bible verses? And so I thought I would have uh, someone... Um, much wiser than I comment on this. And so I have a video clip of the guy I already mentioned, N.T. Wright, um, this scholar. He's kind of known as the scholar of scholars. Raise your hand if you've heard of him before. Okay, look at all the hands, lots of hands. And so he's kind of, in some ways, people have talked about him as being like the new C.S. Lewis, like this person that is, is kind of um, writing on such a level that, that scholars respect him, that, that everyday Christians respect him. And he makes... Um, these complicated things make sense, um, and he is a historian. And so here he is, um, this video clip of him talking about justification and conversion. And so he's going to make this argument that they're two different things. And so now that we've kind of defined this and talked about it, I imagine that you could understand what this scholar is saying. So without further ado, here is N.T. Wright. If we could hear him. Here he is. Here, I'll rewind it. There we go. I thought I heard it. They're working on it. Okay, one more time. That sounds weird. All right, this isn't working. Anyways, what he says is, gosh, making fun of the video. That's N.T. Wright. Um, don't make fun of him. He's like Chuck Norris. He'll come and get you. Um, anyways, he's, he's, anyways, I'm not about to go there. Um, sh- should I try it again? It looks like they're still talking about it. Should I try it again, Josh and Gabe? No. Try it again. No, Gabe is like, nah. All right, I'll just explain. Basically, he says that conversion and justification are two different things. And he is this great scholar on Paul. And if you've ever heard uh, someone talk about the new perspective of Paul, then, then they will often talk about how that we have to go back to what Paul was originally saying to his original context. And when Paul said the words like works, or he said the word law, then he's actually referring to the Torah. And he's referring to how we as Christians are separate from our Jewish brothers and sisters. And so we don't need to carry out the law anymore to be saved. And whereas some of us uh, would just read Paul and see the word works, 
and see the word law, and we would say, oh, our good deeds. Um, Paul's talking about good deeds. Well, N.T. Wright and others and the new perspective of Paul would say, well, Paul's really referring to is the Old Testament law, how that doesn't save us, how we, we need uh, to be saved by grace alone, by faith. And, and so that's, that's the very short of, of N.T. Wright's argument. But he goes on to say that justification and conversion are two different things, that it's this conversion experience that we get to take a hold of and we realize we are believing when we fall down figuratively before Christ on our knees and say, forgive us of our sins. Your work is better than my work. You are the creator of all. I put my trust, my faith, my hope, my life in you, and I will follow you all the days of my life. And that's the conversion moment. And somewhere around that time, we are then um, called justified. We are called as if we had never been sinned. It is as if we are totally righteous before God. And so those are the first two parts of the salvation um, and what it is. The third one is sanctification. Have you heard this term before? It's a church word. What does it mean? To be made holy. Have you heard that before? Um, So this sanctification is what happens after conversion. Sanctification is being made holy. I think this is why some authors uh, in the Bible, like James, are really big upon, oh, it's, it's works and grace, working together. That's how you're saved. Because, of course, if you're really converted and you really are justified, then your life will be lived in such a way that you will become more holy and that you will um, put off sins and you as a Christian will be willing to change and, and, and willing to lay down things and continually lay down things and your life will look different because you are saved. And there'll be something about you that people will know that you are saved. Has anyone ever experienced this? You meet somebody, like not in church, but somewhere else, and you just know that you know that they are a Christian. You didn't even have a spiritual conversation. You didn't even talk about religion. But somehow you just know that they, there's something about them. It's like, oh, of course, they are saved. And then maybe you find out later, yes, they are. Um, has anybody ever else experienced that? Lots of us have. So this idea that there's something about them, and maybe you know enough about them to know that they're, that, they're, that they're nice, that they're holy, that they're righteous, that they don't do things that the world does, that their decisions and the way they talk, the way they carry themselves, what they do is different than the world because they have been converted, they've been justified, and here they are living it out, being made holy. So if you're looking for a simple definition, it's sanctification is to be made holy. And this is a lifelong process. This is something that happens um, right at conversion and then throughout the rest of your life, you're being made holy and you're making decisions to live your life in a holy way. And that's a very important part of salvation because we would say, um, you know, if someone converts and they make, you know, they, whatever it looks like for us at New Life, it could look like uh, an altar call or something like they come to church and they say, yes, they believe believe, I believe, I believe, and they, they come forward for maybe an altar call. They get prayed over, um, and then maybe uh, a couple weeks later, they, they go and they get baptized, and, and th- there's celebration, and there's high-fiving. Yes, and then let's just say this person disappears, and they, they go back into their old life, and they um, uh, have nothing to do with church, and something happens, and they're like, well, I, I don't believe anymore. Forget it. I I, I think I got saved, I did the altar call, I did the baptism thing, 
but it didn't catch, they, they might say, or they just don't want it anymore and they're living their life as if they had never been saved. Well, then that's a whole other conversation about whether they were really saved or whether they were saved and then fell away. That's a whole other conversation. But either way, we would say, well, you know, the fruit doesn't fall too far from the tree. If their life is being lived in such a way that there's no fruit of salvation, well, then they, they probably aren't saved. Maybe they went through a motion um, or, or maybe they did... Uh, did get saved, but then somehow they, they fell away on their own right. And that's, that's a big debate that we will talk about some other time. But the point of the matter is, is that there has to be fruit. Of course there will be fruit if someone is saved. The, the, that is what the whole process of salvation looks like. We convert, we are, we are given this declaration that we're justified, and then this process of life of being sanctified. And finally, the one that we like a lot is glorification. Um, it's a simple definition would be, uh, entering into the rewards of our faith. And so we would talk about heaven. We would talk about resurrection. We would talk about, um, you know, our, our, our coming into at the end of our life, you know, we've, we've lived a life worth living. We've been converted. Our faith is in Jesus and we get to go to heaven. And I think if you talk to people about salvation, In fact, um, I heard these words as you uh, gave me, you know, what are the processes of salvation? You talked about faith, and then we talk about, well, we get to go to heaven. Is kind of what, in some ways, a very simplified salvation looks like. And so I crossed out justification, and I crossed out sanctification, just to say that sometimes this is all we look at. Um, as Protestant, evangelical, American Christians. We are all about getting saved so that we can go to heaven. In fact, someone just this week um, asked me a a question online. Uh, They emailed me, hey, what does New Life Church believe about baptism? And I said, oh, we believe baptism is a symbol of our faith, that it is uh, something that we do um, after you get saved just to communicate to the church, to the body of Christ, that, that we're saved. It's a symbol. It's, it's this beautiful um, symbol of our faith, dying in the baptism waters and then being raised again. Um, so I sent them that email, and they, they were just wanted to make sure. So they said, are, so are you saying that you don't need to be baptized to go to heaven? And of course, the answer is no, you don't need to be baptized to go to heaven. But I think that, that we should graduate and I'm calling us as Mill Sunday Schoolers to graduate because I know you can handle it. We are the nerds of new life. We are the ones that study theology and like this kind of stuff. And so I would challenge us to, to think about salvation um, not as a child, but, but growing up in our theology, growing up in our faith, and not just seeing, um, seeing salvation as you convert and then you get to go to heaven well, then you're, you're leaving off justification. You're leaving off sanctification. We should never just cross out sanctification or justification. I know that I, in my immaturity, uh, when I became a Christian and was a baby Christian, um, I was converted and, and justified. And so I was like, yes, high five. I get to go to heaven. Angels will be rejoicing because I gave my life to Jesus and, and I get to go to heaven. And so I uh, never got baptized for years after I got saved in high school. It was, it was years later, towards the end of my college years, that I was baptized because I would proudly say, oh, I don't need to be baptized because I don't need to be baptized to go to heaven. And so in my mind, salvation was all, all about going to heaven. But, but what about the words of Jesus where he says, get baptized? And, and the, I, the fact that Jesus was baptized himself. It's like, well, if 
Jesus did it, then shouldn't we? Shouldn't we be like Jesus and get baptized? And I remember someone more mature in faith, you know, finding out that I was never baptized and they weren't like, oh my gosh, your salvation's in jeopardy. Um, let's get you underwater quick. Um, but, but listening to me, because I was like, I don't need baptism to be saved. And they were like, yeah, you're right. You don't need it to be saved. But grow up a little bit. What about sanctification? What about this process of, of wanting to show the church um, that, that you are saved and this, this, this process, this beautiful symbol that, that Christ has given to us and commands us to do, to, to baptize? Um, and so it was with that that I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. I, this process of sanctification is also important. That, that just because we don't have to do something to get to heaven doesn't mean we should do something. And I, because I think, big picture, if you just view conversion and going to heaven as the big important parts, like, oh, we get saved so that we could go to heaven, well, then you're kind of viewing salvation like this. I found this picture online. Of course, it's a Jeopardy. I mean, not Jeopardy. Monopoly. Jeopardy, please. Two totally different games. Uh, it's a Monopoly man. There he is with a sweet mustache. Don't I, don't I have a sweet mustache like that? So anyways, uh, the sweet Monopoly man, the community chess card, the get out of hell free card. Someone obviously photoshopped it because the real word is jail. And you can save that card. You can keep it until needed or sold. For complete details, see the reverse side of this card. Um, but if you view salvation as just, oh, it's a ticket out of this world. It's a ticket. When you die, you show this ticket to God saying, you got saved. Then he will get you out of hell free and you can go into the, the pearly gates of heaven. But this view of heaven uh, and, and salvation is, is kind of immature. It's, it's, not, it's just like, oh, I get to... Um, say yes to Jesus so that I get a ticket off of this planet, so that I get to escape this world. Well, isn't that forgetting sanctification altogether? What about the rest of your life? What about living and, and growing in righteousness? We shouldn't just separate soteriology from eschatology. So here's, here's those two words, and I'll explain what they mean because they're big and long. And by the way, big and long words are cool, right? Yes. Um, and so separation of soteriology, what does soteriology mean? Salvation. So let's separate salvation from eschatology. Do you know what that means? Like end times, or not just end times, like the end of the world, but also the end of your own life. We would talk about heaven and hell, uh, Gehenna and Hades, and we would talk about soul sleep, and we'll, we'll uh, talk about all these things related to eschatology. Uh, the afterlife would be a part of eschatology too. So, um, if we separate soteriology and eschatology, well, then we would talk about salvation for the here and now, and we'd save eschatology for another time, which is really why we're, what we're doing here when, when we're, as we're studying systematic theology. In May, we will talk about eschatology, and we will talk about heaven, and we will talk about hell, and we will talk about the resurrection, and soul sleep, and the end times, uh, and Gehenna, and Hades, and all these different things. But I think if, if you're, all of your salvation theology is just wrapped around this ticket out of here that you get to get saved and you get to go to heaven and avoid hell. If that's all salvation means to you, well, then maybe we need to separate and think about soteriology on its own and what this life means being saved and and separate that from eschatology. And in some ways uh, to get um, controversial, but it's not that controversial anymore. Um, Do you remember when this book came out? It's It's called Love Wins by Rob Bell. 
this book like hit the fan and made everything blow up um, because it came out like two years ago now. It came out in 2011. Do you remember when it came out? Because Time did an article on it. People tweeted about Rob Bell and said, oh, he's a heretic. Um, and, but what I liked about the book, and there's plenty I didn't like about the book, which is another conversation about uh, what he wrote about. But what I did like about this particular book is that he did separate his soteriology and his eschatology. And he got people thinking about heaven and hell and salvation and saying, well, well just because uh, you get saved, that doesn't mean it, you shouldn't just look at it as salvation is a ticket, a get out of hell free card. We should view salvation for the here and now. And so what does that mean? Can we mature in our faith enough to say salvation doesn't just mean a ticket out of here, a ticket off of this earth into heaven. It does mean something for the here and the now. And that's, I just brought up that, the, the controversial book because I think that that's in some ways some of the conversations that began to happen after he wrote that book. And I think those are good discussions to have. There's plenty I disagree with about his book, Love Wins, Rob Bell's book. But, but I liked the fact that we were talking as a Christian community about, well, maybe heaven and hell or maybe salvation is, is something a lot more, which I believe it is, than just a ticket out of here. So one more discussion question for you. Um, Can you define salvation without eschatology? Can you define soteriologically what we believe without getting into eschatology? So I worded the discussion question like this. Uh, What does it mean to be saved for this life on earth? Can you think about that and maybe even write out uh, a definition of salvation that doesn't include, does not include a ticket out of here, uh, you know, just getting to go to heaven um, after you die. What does salvation mean for now, the life on this earth? So talk about that. Ready, cassette, discuss. <clears throat> but this is a, a pretty big, important question, I think, um, for us as Christians. I think it, this is, is a part of maturing as a believer and saying, oh yeah, salvation is much more than, than just a ticket out of here. And I brought this question, I meet with uh, the Sunday school leadership team once a month, and I brought up this question, and someone said, oh, it's just like uh, the story Les Mis. Has anybody seen the movie or read the book? Or, I mean, you realize it's a book first, uh, in 18-something, Victor Hugo wrote the book, Les Miserables, which is uh, French for the miserables, but no one is like, that sounds silly, so we keep it Les, Les Mis or Les Miserables. And uh, it was written as a book, and then someone made it into a musical, and then someone made it into the movie with, Lee. did you see the old movie with Liam Nielsen? A couple of you, yes. And then, of course, uh, from the musical, someone wrote uh, a movie, and the movie just came out this year, or just in December last year. How many of you have seen the new movie? Lots of you have. And so we were talking um, as a group, as the Sunday School leaders, about salvation and how salvation works, and kind of answering that question, what does salvation mean for today? And we talked about how Les Mis has this cool... um, image throughout the book or the movie or whatever you're familiar with, the musical, of this character, the main character's name, Jean Valjean, right? Anyway, duh. Um, 
Uh, duh. So he, if you know the story, spoiler alert if you, if you don't, um, but Jean Valjean is a convicted criminal. I guess he, he goes to jail. The, 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 the book starts off, or the movie starts off with him in jail because a long time ago he stole some bread for his starving sister. And um, here he is in jail, and he, he pays his debts, and he's freed, but he's still this criminal. And the inside, he's still a man with criminal intent because he goes to this house and he steals some silver. And then um, he gets caught by the police for stealing the silver. He's brought back to this person's house. The person happens to be a bishop, a priest. Um, And what does the priest do? Does the priest convict him? No. Instead, the priest says, you forgot these candle stands too, and gives him, you know, this huge, valuable, um, all the silver that he's already stolen. And here's this act of grace saying, you're set free. In fact, here's even some more silver. Didn't you forget these? Um, and his famous words as well. And so Jean Valjean, at that moment, we would talk about, well, maybe he was converted at that moment, realizing the depths of his sin and this moment of grace where this bishop looks upon him with grace and mercy and, and says, you can go free you're saved. And so that's, it's maybe in that moment that he's converted because right after that, he goes to the church and he uh, kneels before God and sees this image of Jesus as his savior. And then he goes out and rips up his papers, the papers saying he is a criminal, these papers saying that, that he is a monster and, and not uh, someone who deserves to, to die, to be a criminal for the rest of his life. He rips up those papers, and it's as if, just as if he had never sinned. He, he rips up the papers saying he's a criminal and receives this new identity as Jean Valjean. Uh, and so he goes out and he makes a man of himself. He owns a business and he becomes wealthy and owns um, that business where the women are working, um, making clothes. And then comes the inspector or the chief of police who tries to bring back his past to him and says that he's, he's not Jean Valjean. He's, he's 246001. Um, and, and it's this wrestling match between, oh yeah, that is his old nature. But here he is, new Jean Valjean. And, he, and so there's this wrestling between your, his old nature and his new nature. And he acts accordingly and acts according to his new nature and, and does things that, that live a sanctified life and makes choices. You, you could watch the, the movie or read the book for yourself and see these decisions that he makes, um, that he carries out a holy life, even though there's this old life uh, vengefully looking for him in his old ways, but he's been made new. He's a new man. Um, and then at the end of the, the book or the movie, um, Jean Valjean uh, goes, he dies, and the, the, the book or the movie ends with this uh, beautiful vision of heaven and the people that have died, and they're all singing, and there's candles, and, and, and they're thinking, singing about the, the new earth, the new heavens, this new creation, and how that's, in some ways, this glorification. So, if you've ever thought about the movie like that, and there's lots of themes in the movie or the book or the musical about uh, the Les Miserables, if you've ever thought about it, it could be this beautiful image of conversion, someone who converts and is justified. And then the most, the majority of the, the book or the movie is his sanctification, his working out the salvation. And the book or the movie ends with his glorification, um, seeing heaven and being made anew. And I think that's how we should view salvation. As we 
begin this month-long topic of salvation. We should view salvation in heaven not as like, oh, we get saved so that we could escape this earth, but we get saved so that we could live out a saved life. And there's this parallel universe where God is, and God is here as well, and these universes intersect with us who are saved. And it's not just, oh, we get to peace out of this earth after we die, but oh, we, we get saved so that we can live out this sanctified life and bring God's heaven to earth as we um, carry out our own life and are, are being made righteous. So um, it's these ideas that I wanted to begin this month of Sunday school with. And so let's, let's pray. God, we come before you as, as sinners, as, as people that have been declared righteous, So as sinners, but called saints, God, we come before you and we do ask for salvation. God, we we say that we have fallen short of of your glory. We've fallen short and made mistakes before you, our creator. And so God, we come before you and and admit that and, and request and receive your salvation upon us. And God, as we talk about these things, God, may we go out and, and live out our faith. May we be sanctified and holy before you and make this world a part of your world and, and, and allow heaven and earth to meet and this beautiful um, parallel universe where, where we, as your saints, get to carry out your, your message and, and worship you. So Father, we, we praise you. We do worship you. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mills Sunday School Podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.